2: Hello,
3: I'm Nick Gowing. Welcome to the Emanuel Centre here in the heart of London for this Intelligence Square debate. Is this the moment to call the giant tech companies to account? In the space of just 10 years, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft, all American companies, have become the biggest companies by value on our planet. Their digital ingenuity, their innovation, their risk-taking have transformed our lives beyond recognition, But have companies born in garages or university dormitories accrued a level of extraordinary financial and technological power that threatens us all in multiple ways? They control our data. They know an enormous amount about us and what we do. They exert increasing dominance over how we behave. Increasing numbers of us fear they warp the way we think and our democratic discourse." With so much uncontrolled digital power, our debate, it's time to break up the tech giants. Now the opening statements from the four panellists. Speaking first for the motion, it's time to break up the tech giants. Rana Faruha, who is global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times based in New York. She's also a global economic analyst for CNN. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks to Intelligence Squared, and thanks to all of you for being here. I'm going to start with a personal anecdote. When I joined the Financial Times about a year ago, I came home one day shortly after taking my new job and I opened my credit card bill. And I looked at it and thought, oh my goodness, I've been hacked. Uh, There were about 50 odd charges in relatively small amounts from the App Store. I began to think about what this could possibly be, and then I thought, Aha! And I interviewed my 10-year-old son. (laughs) And I found out that he had been on the App Store. And in fact, he had been racking up charges on his favorite football game, buying players, building his dream team, buying coins. As I interviewed him about this, though, I realized... He had been really unaware, to a certain extent, in a bit of a fog about what was happening, and it struck me that this was very similar to the sort of behavior that people have in casinos. And being an investigative reporter, I then began looking into this and found that these are exactly the technologies that are used in casinos. In fact, the technology that my son was using and that many of us use on a daily basis uh, is called persuasive technology, and it's exactly the kind of addictive technology that is often used by platform firms, by firms to loop us to get us uh, using their products to take our data and then sell that back to third parties or use it to keep us online for longer. They are attention merchants. Now, this is a cognitive crisis. In the U.S., you now have tech investors themselves worried about the effects of this technology uh, and its addictive uh, behavioral effects on youth. There's actually calls for a food and drug administration of technology. But that's just one part of this. This is a cognitive crisis, but this is also a political crisis and an economic crisis. Let me address the politics first. There is now a large body of evidence to show that social media and the largest platform companies were very much involved in the Russian manipulation of the U.S. elections. And this is the case uh, with other countries as well. Now, these firms may or may not have known uh, the way in which their technologies were being used. But they were nonetheless part of this. These technologies have been used in emerging markets, like Myanmar, for example, to prepare populations for genocide. This business model, this hyper-targeted advertising business model, which is meant to collect data about all of us and then use it to deliver products, services, content, news, fake or otherwise, based on your own existing preferences, is a business model that has caused this crisis. It creates the filter bubbles, uh, reinforcing our own existing opinions that has been responsible for the populism that we've seen throughout Europe, uh, has been responsible in part for Brexit, uh, for the populism that we see in the U.S., for the incredibly polarized politics that we have now, and in fact... If you overlay usage of news on platform technologies, on the largest platform sites like Facebook, uh, Google, Netflix, Amazon, etc., you will see patterns about voting, and you will see that these platform technologies actually push extreme uh, opinions, extreme political views. It's interesting to me, actually, when I look at Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, his latest attempts to try and fix the problem, which are long overdue and quite poor, in my opinion, he's encouraging users to go away from news sites and towards family and friends. But family and friends are exactly the filter bubbles that create and reinforce our existing biases. These problems have not been fixed. Huge political issues. These companies are also monopolists. Let's make no mistake about it. When I started working at the FT, my job was to find out where money and power reside. The very first statistic I found, and it's quite a shocking one, is that 80 80 percent of corporate wealth in America now lives in 10 percent Of firms. These are the IP rich firms, most of them in California, the largest of which are the FANGs Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. These are the largest platform firms. They are controlling vastly more wealth than any other company out there. They are driving the markets, not just in the U.S., but in all other countries. Uh, This is where wealth lives. One of the ways in which the platform firms have avoided being broken up uh, or at least taken to court for antitrust issues successfully thus far is because the way we think about antitrust is outdated. For the last 40 years, particularly in the U.S., we have thought about pricing power as being the measure of uh, of whether there's a problem or not. Companies can get as big as they want, but as long as their products and services are going down in price, there's no problem. But we are living in a new digital world now. The products and services that these firms offer are free or cheap. We think they're free. We're actually paying with our data. Our data is their oil. Our data is the most valuable commodity we have. So we have no idea how much value is going out the window. And yet, uh, regulators, uh, legislators have not taken on this issue because we have this outdated notion of antitrust. That is one issue that we need to address here, and I hope that we get into it in more detail. Now, there's an idea that, well, these services are working so well, how could we possibly break them up? But let's go back and look at history. In the 1920s with the railroads, in the 1940s and 50s with the oil companies, in the 1980s with the telecoms companies, there were breakups. There were checks on the power of monopoly companies. And guess what? Growth afterwards was higher. The number of firms being started was higher. Wealth was more equally shared. Breaking up firms isn't a recipe for uh, degrading products and services. It's actually a recipe for innovation. In fact, you can argue that in the 80s in the U.S., cell phone technology probably came 10 years earlier than it would have because after the breakup of AT&T, various parts of that company, Bell, for example, focused on wireless technology. This is just one of many examples I could give you. Big tech has not shown itself to be a good steward of the digital commons. When I look at the way in which the CEOs have handled things thus far, they have not listened to critics. uh, They have not responded to detractors. They have obfuscated. um, They are closed. They are not willing to take outside criticism and respond to it uh, in a constructive way. And I also look, as someone that thinks about capitalism and how it's supposed to work, I look at what Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, would have said about these markets. He believed that we needed three things for markets to work properly. Equal access to data, transparency of pricing of what is being exchanged, and a shared moral framework. Guess what? When you're using these technologies today, you have none of that. Big tech should be broken up. Thank you.
3: Rana Faruha, thank you very much indeed for that opening statement for the motion. Now let's go to the first voice against the motion, to Pina Ackman, who is Professor of Law at the University of Leeds, where she's also the Director of the Centre for Business Law and Practice. Pina, the floor is yours.
4: Good evening. On the 2nd of March 1998, the Fortune magazine announced the winner of the search engine wars in the following words, quote, This much is clear. Yahoo has won the search engine wars and is poised for much bigger things, unquote. The headline read, quote, Once upon a time, Yahoo was an internet search site with mediocre technology. Now it has a market cap of $2.8 billion. Some people say it's the next America online, unquote. Indeed. Indeed. Six months later, a company called Google was born. In order to prove their case to you that the tech giants should be broken up, our opponents tonight need to convince you of three things. First, that the technology market is not a competitive one. Second, that the tech giants have engaged in conduct that disrupts the competitive process and ultimately harms consumers. Third, that breaking them up is a necessary and proportionate reaction to the harm that they have identified, which they won't have. In fact, they will not be able to prove any of these because there is no real-world evidence to support any such claim that the tech giants should be broken up. Let's start with the first thing that they need to prove. Namely, that the technology market is not a competitive one. That the tech giants are so big that they do not face competition from anyone anymore. They are unshakable. This is blatantly not true. Let's go back to America Online, AOL, and Yahoo for a moment. I have a feeling from your laughter that none of you here use AOL for instant messaging. Or probably Yahoo for search. Some of you may have never even heard of AOL. At the turn of this century, the century we're still currently in, AOL was the United States' biggest internet provider and worth $125 billion dollars. So much so that AOL's merger with Time Warner, the largest merger in American corporate history, valued at $165 billion, was noted to be the death of the old media. The merger created the fourth largest corporation in the United States at the time. It was said that this merger would launch the next internet revolution. It did not. AOL and Yahoo failed, because they could not keep up with the pace of innovation to deliver better and even better products and services to consumers. Google, Amazon, Facebook, and others can also fail if they fall into the same trap. In fast-moving technology markets, no company is too big to fail. No one is irreplaceable. And it is that existential threat the threat of competition from those more innovative and better than themselves that keep these tech giants on their toes. Now, Rana has said technology startups have gone down, but 1.8 million technology startups are still launched every year. Hundreds of these, about 270 of them so far, launched since 2009, have reached a valuation of at least $1 billion. We only need to think about successful startups like Uber, Netflix, Expedia, and Spotify to realize that competition is everywhere. Not only do the tech giants face the existential threat of simply becoming irrelevant, even when they are popular, they are constantly competing with numerous competitors for a scarce resource, our attention. This is because we, as users, multi home. We don't just use Google to search for a product to buy. We use Amazon and eBay and online retailers. The second point that our opponents need to prove to convince you that the tech giants should be broken up is that these tech giants have engaged in conduct that disrupts the competitive process and ultimately harms consumers. It's not the size that matters. No modern competition law in the world renders it unlawful to have even a monopoly, And let's not forget these companies are not monopolies, unlike what Rana says, because monopoly means a single seller. Having market power in itself is not unlawful. It's using that power to distort competition and ultimately harm consumers through increased prices or lowered quality. That is prohibited by competition law. What the tech giants do in real life is quite the opposite of harming consumers. The big tech companies provide us with an endless list of free services which make our lives easier and more enjoyable in ways we couldn't even imagine were possible. Third, our opponents have to prove to you that breaking up the tech giants is a necessary and proportionate reaction to the alleged harm that these companies cause. Let's think for a moment what type of company we may want to break up. On the rare occasion that breaking up a company may be an appropriate remedy, the company will normally be a natural monopoly where due to the very substantial costs involved in serving consumers an essential product or service in the most efficient way, the market works better with a single company. None of these tech companies we're talking about today or their products are essential or indispensable. People around the world can and do live without them all the time. Therefore, we cannot compare them to utilities like water, gas, and electricity and ask for them to be broken up. The rule of law requires proportionality of the remedy to the harm in question. As you will see clearly by the end of this evening, the calls for breaking the tech giants up are driven not by real-world evidence of any wrongdoing, but by fear. Fear of the big and fear of of the unknown. Let's remember for a second who these companies we're talking about breaking up are. All of the big five we're going to talk about today are in the top 10 of the world's most admired companies. They're some of the world's biggest spenders on research and development with Amazon leading the world. They're not good because they're big. They're big because they're good. And what do our opponents want to do with some of the world's most successful companies in history? They want to break them up. As Judge Leonard Hans said in the seminal case of Alcoa, the successful competitor, having been urged to compete, must not be turned upon when he wins. This House should vote against the motion. Thank you.
3: Dean Arckman with the first voice uh, against the motion with that very clear gauntlet laid down to those proposing the motion for break up saying they are big because they are good these big companies and breaking up is disproportionate. Luke Johnson, one of Britain's most successful entrepreneurs, former chairman of Channel 4 Television here in the United Kingdom. The floor is yours.
5: I think the tech giants should be broken up because they are bad for society, bad for the creative community, bad for Britain, bad for jobs, bad for government finances, bad for people and bad for the reputation of business. I'm very pro-business and strongly in favour of free markets. I've spent over 30 years running and growing companies in this country. But there are cases of bad business like monopolies and invasion of privacy and egregious tax avoidance and free riding on the efforts of others and the tech giants are guilty of all these sins and more. I'm not the only capitalist who think the tech giants are dangerous. For example, perhaps the world's best-known management guru, Tom Peters, author of In Search of Excellent, wrote earlier this month, the sole concern of Google and Facebook is to convert the most intimate details of your life into revenue. A few billion bucks of Zuckerbergian philanthropy does not offset the catastrophic human damage caused by his life-desiccating invention." Already, Google and Facebook have 20% of the world's entire global ad spend and over 100 billion of advertising revenues in 2016, almost three-quarters of all online advertising. They've taken the entire growth of all advertising spend in recent times. Unfortunately, Google has a higher market share of online search in Britain than virtually any other market, over 85%. I call that a monopoly. They operate close to a monopoly here and in much of Europe. The EU competition, Watchdog, found them guilty of skewing search results in their favour in their own shopping services in breach of antitrust rules. In June this last year, they fined them €2.4 billion euros for illegal monopolistic behaviour, largest such fine ever levied by the EU. Of course Google are appealing it and have shrugged it off. They've got €75 billion euros, uh, dollars in cash. The arrogance of the Silicon Valley giants is breathtaking. They believe they are above regulation, governments, nations... It's time, I think, they learn that there are consequences for their deeply antisocial behaviour. Google's supposed natural search core product is a fraud and is deliberately distorted to make them more money and give misleading results to unsuspecting consumers. The EU has not come to their decision to fine Google quickly or lightly, and the size of the fine reflects the severe nature of the crime. And this is despite the considerable amount of money the tech giants spend on lobbying here and in the US, Google alone employs 183 people who worked under Obama, while 58 ex-Google staff members now work in Washington. The tech spender sector outspends Wall Street in lobbying efforts in Washington two to one. But the duopoly in digital advertising is merely the start of the problem. Google in particular is a notorious free rider on Britain's film, TV, publishing and music industries. Our creative economy is enormously successful. Google derives a huge proportion of its advertising income by acting as a toll collector for users who want to access all that content, especially via suits like YouTube, which it owns. Yet it invests nothing in our cultural entertainment sectors. It siphons off the advertising that TV, radio, magazines and newspapers depend upon which means there is ever less money to pay journalists, programme makers, performers and all the other creatives who practice their craft in England. Facebook has a similar parasitic model. Both Facebook and Google are industrial-scale copyright infringers and have no respect for intellectual property, save of course their own. They have huge quantities of pirated material on their sites such as YouTube and are unbelievably lax about taking it down. Unfortunately, the traditional news and content producers are generally the only ones being properly regulated – and many are seeing their business model destroyed by Google and Facebook. If the newspapers and news broadcasters go bankrupt, then who will report accurately and apply a resource to holding power to account in a responsible way? Not Facebook and Google. They have each contributed heavily to the rise of fake news and the damage it has done to civic life. Their robotic business models rely on algorithms and have minimal human intervention. Great for their profit margins, but a disaster for quality of information and humanity's values. Meanwhile, Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt, states in the introductory letter to shareholders that we adhere to the highest levels of ethical business practices. I'm sorry, Dr Schmidt, but I think you are spouting sanctimonious humbug. His business has quite deliberately organised its business affairs in an aggressive manner to avoid corporation tax on its overseas earnings. They've manipulated the rules so as to pretend that the profits made in Britain are made elsewhere, claiming that its UK operation is not a permanent establishment. This is clearly a sham, given they employ 800 software engineers here, have been trading in Britain for well over a decade, and are opening a £1 billion freehold HQ in Kings Cross. Yet it claims to make so little profit here, it paid just £130 million in corporation tax for 10 years of underpayments. If it had paid corporation tax at the standard 20% rate, then the tax it owed would have been 10 times the amount it actually paid. The tech giants are strip-mining our creative and cultural industries and undermining democracy. Thanks to the rise of the smartphone, they've been running massive social and psychological experiments on their users, without the users even realising quite what's happening. Addiction to Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and so forth has a huge human cost. Citizens have surrendered their personal data for nothing. The tech giants are exploiting the public's poor understanding of software to destroy markets and almost enslave citizens, while creating few jobs, paying a fraction of the tax they should, and generating no new creative content. Like Rockefeller and Standard Oil in the early 20th century, they have clearly seized a new opportunity and utterly maximised it to the great disadvantage of the consumer, the economy and society. Unfortunately, fines and regulatory changes don't seem to be enough to get the attention of the new tech titans. We need a Teddy Roosevelt to see the threat, lead the charge, break up these new tech vampire squids in order to offer choice and force more ethical behaviour. I ask you to vote in favour of the resolution. Thank you.
3: Luke Johnson, thank you very much indeed. With it's clear, bad, 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 bad. I didn't hear a good there. 85% is a monopoly. Arrogance is breathtaking, and they're above legislation, the heart of the argument from this side proposing the motion. Now the second voice against the motion, Elizabeth Linda, Welcome, founder and former head of Facebook's politics and government division for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Previously working on politics and communications at YouTube, the year it was acquired by Google now CEO of the Conversational Century, a global advisory movement. Elizabeth Linder, the floor is yours.
2: Well, I spent eight years at Facebook from 2008 to 2016. By the time I left the company about a year and a half ago... I had been at Facebook longer than 99.2% of employees at the time. And, you know, you see a lot in eight years at a company that's growing as quickly as Facebook. I arrived in that magical time when everyone was realizing that Facebook was becoming more than a place where friends and family were sharing vacation photos and the odd bit of gossip. It was actually starting to have a real and serious impact on the world. And I had a fascinating portfolio working with uh, civil society leaders and diplomats and journalists, uh, royal households, parliamentarians, to help them understand this space. But of all of the glamour in the constituents that I used to uh, discuss these topics with, no group had a bigger impact on me than civil society. Civil society leaders in every corner of the globe are the people who are out to make the world a better place, to leave it in a better place where they found it, to drive more compassion and kindness into the worlds in which and the communities in which they live. They're an extraordinary group of people, even if they seem a little bit less influential or powerful, on paper than so many of the people who govern their countries. And in order to reach these people, I partnered with an organization called Tech Camp. Tech Camp brought together trainers from media organizations, including the the BBC, people like me from Facebook, all kinds of individuals involved in companies working with civil society leaders on keeping them safe online and secure. And we would go around from Kazakhstan to Morocco, Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Lithuania, to work with civil society leaders and train them up on how to make the most of the new tools that were available to them to get their messages heard, to seed their ideas, to make a positive difference in the world. Every single time, I participated as the Facebook lady at Tech Camp. My room was always the one to fill first. People would pour in to have the conversation about Facebook. I even remember one particular uh, training program in Ramallah. It was all, all women, actually, at that event, and my entire group uh, were in education, they were all educators. And I couldn't even introduce myself, because they ran into the room with reams and reams of paper filled with their ideas, their eyes shining, one of them even wearing Facebook shoes. And they shared with me all of the ideas they had for how it was that they were going to use this technology that was invented halfway around the world to improve education in their communities. And I would sit there at these programs, Looking in the eyes of these people, thinking, you know, for everyone else, Facebook is a service. It's a series of products and features, and we wish each other happy birthday, and we share photos, and that's all wonderful. But for them, Facebook was the promise. It's that new global platform where they can connect in a completely different way. Most of us in this room don't even understand to change the world. Now that changes the conversation. That means that sitting wherever we're sitting in our, in our rooms or in London, we actually have to think about the global community we're talking about because the decisions we make here are going to have a huge impact on people that don't actually have a voice in this kind of debate. In fact, I would argue that this kind of debate is misleading, dangerous, and disappointing. It's misleading because, to be honest, what is a tech giant? You know, Amazon has more in common with Walmart than it does with Facebook or Twitter. Financial institutions are rapidly rebranding trying to encourage us to think of them as tech companies. They have to. That's the future. That's the only way they're going to compete. Chatham House, in building its digital society initiative, has taken the bold step to say, actually, technology is not a separate, distinct bucket of Chatham House. The tech sector permeates the entirety of the House. It's the Americas program. It's the Energy and Environment program. It's all of the House. Tech giants, as a phrase, is misleading. This debate is also incredibly dangerous because it's so alluring and it's so fashionable right now to blame everything on names of companies that people reading the news have heard about. And this is really harmful because what it does is it masks what's really going on in our societies. The tech sector, the tech companies, these platforms put up a mirror to the real world. If anything, we understand the real world better because we encounter it, we see it. We might not hang out at the same restaurants as every, everybody leaving comments on social media hangs out but by golly, we see their opinions when we're online. That might be a slightly scary thing. It's also a very good thing. And if these last few months have actually flared up some of the challenges, the deep challenges of this space, the threats in this space, the dark and sinister corners which do exist, well, they exist in the real world too. And I'm actually proud of us that we are stepping up our game and our responsibility to have these conversations head-on because we all have to, the companies, government, civil society leaders, everybody who's part of this debate and using these products, we have a moment in time here to channel them for the better or not. And finally, it's disappointing that we're having a conversation about breaking up the so-called tech giants. Disappointing because it fails to understand the true potential of the network effect. Networks only work to their maximum potential when they're big. That's the whole promise of this space. The bigger they are, the more people who are connecting, the more you're actually finding these communities emerge where people from far different countries and backgrounds are connecting and say, hey, we both have the same problem. Let's go out and fix it. Unless we actually allow these networks to grow, we don't allow them to reach any semblance of potential. That would be such a failure to actually see this era through. And it's our time that gets to decide how this story ends. At the end of this debate, at the end of this conversation, I encourage all of you to look up the song, A Million Dreams, from The Greatest Showman, which is currently uh, in theaters, at least here in London. A million dreams is all it's going to take, go the lyrics a million dreams for the world we're going to make. Now, imagine if that lyric didn't apply to a million dreams from one person's imagination, but it applied to one, two, six, seven billion dreams from the global collective imaginations that all of us connected to these services represent I hope, when that happens, that if we have done our job well, the debate will have nothing to do with technology and everything to do with our renewed and restored faith in humanity. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much indeed with that very clear alert that this is a misleading, dangerous and disappointing debate. It fails to understand the true potential of a network and that last remark about uh, not about technology but about renewed, restored faith. I'm going to reveal now what you were thinking when you came in. Um, More than a third of you haven't made up your mind or hadn't made up your mind at that point. But uh, the um, pre-debate vote at the moment is showing for the motion 39% against the motion 24%. So you have a bit of work to do on this side. Right, so that's what uh, the position was at the beginning. The undecideds are 37%. That's more than one-third of you. So we need a bit of convincing on both sides here. Let me come to the floor down here at the front, please. On microphone number one.
0: I'm against the motion. And uh, I have a question for the uh, people uh, who are for the motion. Uh, could you, like, give a concrete example of one or two companies and how you would split them up? Because I'm, I'm quite interested in which you split them up by uh, sector or, like, by vertical or try to split them up by country or...
3: How can you split up the companies? That's the question. And we'll come to you in a moment. Number four, please. Um, hi, uh, I'm for the motion. Um, and I was just wondering, we, we, you were talking about the dreams and how uh, the, the fact that Facebook is made to sort of unleash all those dreams. But you're sort of giving the impression that Facebook is this philanthropist organization. I'll ask you, you know, how, how does Facebook make, make money? What is, what is its business model? And surely that gives it away as well. Okay, thank you. Elizabeth, Lindra. I'll come to you in a moment. But that first question uh, about um, how do you split the companies? Yeah,
1: should I jump in? Um, so each company would have to be looked at in a different way. But but let me just can say... It, it can be done. It has been done. It's been done by any other number of industries in the past. What's interesting is that a number, just to step back for one moment, a number of less, uh, as, as the opposition would say, draconian measures have been suggested. There are, for example, massive loopholes that all of the tech platforms benefit from. There's a law in the U.S. called CDA 230, which essentially allows them complete exemption Uh, from what happens on their sites, no matter how nefarious it is. Now, any other business, media, any other industry doesn't get that same loophole, and yet these firms lobby even against having to uh, abide by these basic rules that any other industry does. They fight against data privacy. They fight uh, any kind of less draconian solution that has been proposed, they fight against. So I fear, frankly that there is going to have to be uh, really tough regulatory measures like a breakup to actually shift their power. And can
3: this re- be done as an expert in competition law? But
1: if I
4: could just pick up that last point in terms of talking about breaking up the number two lobbyer. So you're admitting there's even a bigger lobbyer than the tech giant. So why aren't we talking about breaking them up? If we're worried about political political power, surely we should also be talking about the finance industry, the health industry, energy industry, where we also see giants. So if we're going to break companies up because of political power, the focus of tonight is not correct. So let's just you know clarify that. Where it has been done, it's always been in the case of a natural monopoly. So this is what I said in my talk. We cannot compare the so-called tech giants to the monopolies which provided water, gas, electricity. I mean, they are so different in so many ways. Just think about it. Would you like to have two telephone lines coming into your house or two different gas pipes from two different gas companies? These are natural monopolies because it's more efficient for one supplier to supply you. Tech companies are nothing like natural monopolies. There is... There is competition, for a start, on both sides of the market. So that's the crucial distinction. In the instances where there has been a breakup, we had a one-sided market. You had a seller and you had buyers. These markets are two-sided markets. So you have advertisers, you have the users, and the tech companies are the platform that bring the two sides together. So breaking them up would be, for a start, so much more complicated than breaking up in any other company right. in another industry
3: Elizabeth Linda that particular question there about uh, money
2: yeah the advertising model well it just it's it's curious to me because the advertising model has nothing to do uh, with the use of free services the whole point of so many of these services is anybody no matter where they live can use them and you are served ads um, when you're using these these products um, as a you know very um, innocuous way of actually paying paying for these services on the back end. But I think it's an important point, because to flag the point about not really understanding how it is that you can build an idea on a platform um, is really uh, reflective of the country that we're in right now. We're having this conversation in a country that benefits from rule of law, that benefits from freedoms of speech. In so many countries where people are using these services, they're using these services as the only way to have safe conversations that otherwise would be illegal in their jurisdictions. It's hugely important that this entire community works hard to keep these services up and available for those people.
3: Luke Johnson, can I just come, uh, come to you? Um, you used bad, 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 bad. I lost count, actually, at the beginning of your remarks. Tech giants are bad, 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 bad. Do you see anything good in them, given what we've just heard from those against the motion?
5: I think if they weren't so monopolistic, if they weren't... They say they're not. Well, they're fantasizing. 85% of a market <laughs> is a monopoly.
4: But which
1: market? It What's It's a monopoly. Market? It's
5: obvious. What there is can the be market? no better definition. In search, Google is a monopoly. 88% search is not You're, you're delusional if you don't think it
1: is. 88% share Google has in search. Amazon takes 50% of all e-commerce it's their, sales. It's their abuse
5: of creative content, it's their infringement of copyright, it's their aggression towards taxation, it's their um, deliberate addiction of users that I think is so unhealthy. And all the business about, changing. you know, uh, oh. Africa and things is a sort of distraction. It's a joke. It's a joke.
3: Dina, let, let, let's be clear, you're a professor of competition law. Is 85% a monopoly by academic Depends standards or not? Well, I'm asking okay, the academic so our now.
4: opponents have just made the mistake which I had alluded to in the sentence before. They have just treated, treated a two-sided market as a one-sided market, and this is where the crucial difference is. There is no search engine market, because when you say the market is for search engines, you're completely ignoring the side of the market which provides the revenue for that search Website to run. If you but ask you know, Google, I've got, to,
3: I've got to press you. Is what 85% they say on that side is a monopoly?
4: The definition of a monopoly is a single seller. It's from Greek. 2. If it's Actually, a buyer,
5: euros fine from the EU says it's a monopoly. It doesn't
4: say it's a monopoly. <laughs> it says it has a dominant position. And right. as I said, having a dominant Typical position is not splitting. illegal. Having a dominant position is not unlawful. It's the abuse of that position through conduct that distorts competition. And in modern competition laws, we understand that distortion to mean you're harming consumers, either through increased prices or lowered quality. That's what's unlawful,
1: not having a monopoly. It's the use of the power to exploit that power. If I may jump in for a moment, this is actually a crucial point, and it links together two points we've just heard. The entire definition of monopoly, which, by the way, varies amongst academics and from country to country, is in question here. The idea of consumer price just lower prices being the measure of what's good for all of us. Well, over the last 40 years, we got lower prices on flat-screen TVs. We got lower prices on a lot of things. We've also lost tons and tons of jobs. There is a trade-off here, and earlier definitions of monopoly and many European definitions of monopoly have a broader take on this. What is good for the economic ecosystem? These firms, relative to their market uh, cap, create vastly fewer jobs than in the past. They are anti Competitive in any number of ways, they are patent infringers. The EU fines that we were just talking about. The jury is still out as to whether Google has even properly uh, 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 lived remedied. up to their remedied remedied that issue. I suspect very highly uh, that they're going to be found by the commissioner to still be in violation of those competitive uh, issues. But going to the point, and this is crucial to tie these two things together. The advertising model is what's at question here. When you use these supposedly free services, free isn't free. You pay with your data. Facebook knows if you're depressed, what you do online, where you work, what your political beliefs are, and they then sell that information to the highest bidder. Don't kid yourself. Free is not free, and they sell it to third-party advertisers that you have no idea who they are.
3: All right, I should tell you, we did invite Google... We did invite Google onto this panel, but they declined. Right, let me get some more views, please. A lady down at the front here.
4: So, two years ago, there was an American father who opened a letter from Target for his 15-year-old daughter. Inside it was coupons for diapers and prams. So he went to Target infuriated. How dare they give that to his 15-year-old daughter? Nine months later, his 15-year-old daughter gave birth. Target knew using her consumption data before her own father. But would you really class Target as a tech giant? I wouldn't. So I pose the proposition. Is this privacy issue that you're talking about and this use of data, is this really a function of size and is therefore breaking it up the appropriate solution and not regulation on data like GDPR, a more appropriate solution?
3: Thank you. What about this spooky... um view and that that story there about who knows what and the tech giants know more than the family.
1: Well, I think that that goes to the very point that they know exactly what you do. I mean, you know, to quote Eric Schmidt, we get right up to the creepy line. We know what you're thinking. We know what you're clicking on. You know, this is a self-professed tech titan telling you that you are being watched. Now, it is a fair point that the tech giants are not the only ones that manipulate data. We have a – and this is a broader conversation – we have a concentration problem in general in the economy. But let me make a point that many industries right now – are consolidating in order to compete with the power of the tech giants themselves. If you look at any number of media consolidations right now, it's about trying to uh, compete with platform giants. But across the board, IT, um, IP, rich services, tech, financial service, biotech, that's where the most concentration is. That's where the biggest problem is.
3: Luke Johnson, I've got to ask you, do you reckon you sell more books online than you do in bookshops? Probably now. And I should come back to
5: the point, are they all bad? The truth is, once upon a time, perhaps they were very good. They were innovative. You talked about the early days, and I'm sure in the early days, Facebook was a real nice place. But, you know, what happens is companies sell out and size and profits become dominant, And that is what has happened at Facebook and Google and others. And size has its own perils. And these companies are too big and too powerful and they don't care. And with success becomes arrogance and hubris.
3: And let's hope there's some nemesis that follows. Right, great. Let's get more uh, views from the audience. Please, right at the back. Um, Number three.
6: (coughs) Hello, good evening. Thank you, panel. Uh, I certainly started this evening against the motion and I'm now a little bit more on the fence. But for me, the critical uh, uh, issue that's been raised by two or three of the questions that the panel has not addressed is the difference here between the monopoly element of this and the poor behaviour and the regulatory element. There is something to be said for these companies, many of them being natural monopolies. We want to be able to go online and share some of these things with as many people as possible. There's a natural tendency for that, but that is likely to be washed away in the way in which so many waves of technology have been over the last 30, 40 years. We once thought Microsoft would never be dislodged as the major technology player because it owned applications. Things we don't even do anymore. Monopolies die because whole waves of technology passes by, not because other people have to come along and disrupt them. And we can see now that that is going to happen to or we can imagine now that's going to happen to some of these players. And if the case, therefore, if the case, therefore, is not that the monopoly is evil, but their behaviour is evil, we shouldn't be talking about tech giants. We should be talking about individual companies who need to be taken over uh, and wrapped over the knuckles, made to pay more tax, made to be honest about what they're doing. And Google, in particular, should be in our crosshairs. Vino, you're just
3: nodding your head there. Uh, Why?
4: That's exactly the point. We shouldn't be talking about tech giants in general. We shouldn't be talking about. Markets, what we think are markets, we should be talking about specific conduct in a specifically defined market and whether that specific conduct actually distorts competition on that market. And that's what the law actually does. That's how the law works on a day-to-day basis. And tax and other issues, they're not part of this law, which is competition law. They're different policies. You have tax policy, you have labor policy, you have data protection policy. And by all means, use all of them. They should be subject to the law as much as anyone else. But breaking them up, although it is an option in the toolkit... It is really the nuclear option. And if I could just correct one point, because I think it's important. Rana said that Facebook sells your data. If you go to Facebook's privacy policy and Google's, they do not sell your data. They explicitly state that. They use the data to match you to advertisers who have relevant advertisements to show to you as consumers.
3: Okay.
4: And time... Can I continue since I got a laughter? No. <laughs> because... Research shows consumers actually only want to see relevant advertisements. And you can opt out of your data being collected as well. It's quite easy. You'll still see advertisements, but they won't be relevant.
3: Luke Johnson. Who's
5: ever read Google or Facebook's privacy policy? You know those forms you have to sign before you use them? They're designed so no one ever reads them. So you take all their policies wholesale. And that's the way they operate. They are ruthless. They are arrogant and they want to control. Thank you. Please, at the
3: back. Number three.
1: I'm against the motion. I have a question
6: for the four camp. Why is increased regulation not enough? Why do you need to go so far as
1: breaking up the tech giants?
3: All right, thank you. Right, increased regulation is not enough. What's your answer?
1: Um, basically, the tech giants have lobbied unbelievably hard and poured um, last year around $300 million into fighting legislation. There's been um, no part uh, of any kind of constructive legislation that's been put forward in the U.S., which is the market I know best, but I know in many parts of Europe as well, that they have not poured money against. I'll go back to this this loophole, CDA 230. This was something that was invented in 1996 when the Internet was very nascent. And these firms were just starting out. They were in people's garages at that point. And uh, they wanted some protection for loony people going online and doing things like, hey, maybe trying to influence the U.S. elections. Uh, And so they got that. But the the upshot now is that you have websites. This was a big case in the U.S. that are allowing child sex trafficking, uh, and uh, trade associations to which these large platform firms belong were actually lobbying against legislation, saying that was wrong. That's how tightly they want to hold on to these loopholes that give them unfair advantages. That's what any large industry with a lot of political power does. I would love to believe that there was a a kinder, gentler solution, but I covered the financial markets. I'm covering tech now. These folks play hard.
3: This regulation is you, Elizabeth.
1: Yeah,
2: well, I think, see, I think this is where we just get confused here in this debate. And I love the point on why is legislation and regulation uh, not enough? Why go so far as to break up? The fact that these companies, and I would really disagree with Luke's point on the, on the, the arrogance piece, it's when a company is in the early stage that they have the arrogance of youth, so to speak. You need to spend more time in the Silicon Valley. Once these companies actually get to a certain level where they realize their own power, they realize how much people are relying on them, I tell you, that is a big piece of humble pie served with ice cream on the side that every entrepreneur has to face. And you know what? They're doing an awfully good job of stepping up to the plate to their own responsibility right now.
1: I can't get these people to call me back. These CEOs from these firms, they do not want to answer. I'll tell you something. When I write a negative piece about Jamie Dimon... He calls me on the phone. Haven't heard from any of them yet.
3: That's the chief executive of J.P. Morgan. They're too too busy on their corporate jets. One more comment, please. There's a lady at the front uh, on question number one. Hi,
6: I'm in favour of the motion as a last resort. To go back to your very first questioner, asking how these tech giants could be broken up. To use Google as an example, the EC fine that was referred to from last summer was because... The Commission found Google guilty of abusing its dominant position in search to move into adjacent markets and preference its own, often inferior travel, comparison shopping, mapping service, etc. So one way you could break Google up is take the vertically integrated additional services such as mapping, price comparison, Uh, travel search, local search, and force them to go back into being a pure play search engine, remove that conflict of interest that causes them to crush competition, innovation and consumer choice in those adjacent markets.
3: Thank you. It's interesting... It's interesting the new chief executive of General Electric, GE, is saying it's time to break up GE, please.
6: The, the question that I have, one of the more interesting part of this debate is one side is arguing current monopoly law no longer applies. The other side is arguing we cannot break these companies up based on current monopoly law. So I'm curious in terms of the professor... Do you agree or would you concede that we should revisit the definition of a monopoly and how we think about a monopoly? And is that one of the things that legislators um, should be thinking about right now?
3: Pinar, given what you said earlier, let's make it a one-word answer, please.
4: Current law can be used to break them up as a last resort. Um, there are parts of the current law we need to revisit, One of them is something I alluded to before. What's a relevant market? Is search a market, for example, or do we need to take it differently because there are two sides of this market and only one side is paying? So there are certainly aspects of the current law that need to be rethought, but the law as it is written is actually quite general in the way it's worded. So it could cover pretty much everything we have been discussing today that's relevant for competition law. It's the fact that we need to rethink some of the underlying concepts or definitions or tools we have used rather than rewrite the law again.
3: Right. I've got one final point um, for Elizabeth. I, not, uh, this is about your former employers. When you see Mark Zuckerberg on the 4th of January in his New Year's uh, message to everyone inside and outside the company, say, we currently make too many errors in forcing our policies and preventing misuse of our tools. Are they getting their comeuppance now? Are they realizing too late the mistakes they should have seen coming down the track?
2: I don't think it's too late. I think that it's a really good time to be having this conversation. Um, The fact that these companies actually recognize, as you do, the challenges... The fact that these companies are addressing, as you are, these challenges is going to lead us all into a much better place.
3: And Luke Johnson and uh, Rana as well. That point about what Mark Zuckerberg himself has chosen to say literally a few days ago on january the fourth, we currently make too many errors in forcing our policies and preventing misuse of our tools.
5: Well, it's good to see that the management and owners are recognising that the businesses are flawed. I worry that it's too little too late and that it isn't going to make enough difference to the, what I believe to be very significant damage done by companies like Facebook.
1: And his remedies are off. I mean, pushing people towards friends and family rather than to true news is actually going to increase the filter bu- bubble problem.
2: Well, but the, the news feed uh, tweak takes into account the comments that people make on news stories as well that come from your friends and family. and. I think most people would agree that when you sit around a uh, holiday table, you don't necessarily agree with all of the relatives that come around to eat turkey with you. You know, these kinds of conversations are conversations that are happening in our everyday lives. They should be happening online. There's one point on trust, though, Nick, if I could, that I wanted to pick up. Um, years ago, I, I did a study with the Staffordshire Police that showed that actually in today's world, more people trust updates from the police on Facebook than they trust updates about the police in print, radio, and TV news. So the extraordinary impact actually for social media to very helpfully partner uh, with our societies as a trust-building exercise is only something we don't talk about because it's not as newsworthy – as the story that it's undermining trust in our institutions.
3: What about that issue, um, uh, Pina, of the fact that many of these tech giants did not see the connection between their algorithms selling adverts and some of the vile videos which were being posted? The fact is it took the public and also the advertisers to say, we want nothing to do with that. Actually, that, it, that, it took newspapers like The Times uh, and because the, they spend on content and they have journalists. But there were a lot of advertisers as well who said, we want nothing to do with this. In other words, they were deciding this was unacceptable.
4: And they took immediate action. I mean, But they, they should have seen it coming. It's Well, the, the, so the internet has billions and billions of sites and I don't know how much content there is on the internet. I mean, it's no mean feat to try to organise all of that information. The point here is... Google, for example, changes apparently its algorithms about 600 times a year to stay on top of all of that. But if they still fail to do, of course they should take action to remedy it. And from what you can read in the press, in reaction, for example, to the recent Times investigation, they have taken action pretty much immediately. I mean, there's only so much they can do to stay on top. Of course they should be subject to the rules on data protection, on not you know, promoting illegal content and so on. No one is saying that this should continue. But essentially, how much do you intervene is the question, and in what way do you intervene? Are the current regulations sufficient, or do we have a failure which suggests we should take a drastic action like breaking up? But like the point that was made earlier, you break them up today, other companies can reach that same size because of the network effects. They get big when they're successful, so it's not the size that we should be focusing on.
3: At that point, let me just give you the result of the ballot, and I need to... To uh, tell you what you were thinking, remind you what you were thinking when you came in here at the start of the debate thirty seven percent more than a third of you were undecided, uh, and the uh, vote then uh, which was taken at the door was uh, for the uh, motion thirty nine percent the break of, of the giants against was twenty four percent Now only two percent are undecided, most of you have made up your mind, which is great. That means the debate has worked. But I have to tell you that uh, compared to 39% for the motion, it's now 46% for the motion, but 52% against. So even allowing for undecided, a significant move from that side... To this side, so I declare the motion uh, defeated by 52% to 46%. So quickly, congratulations to this side. That side didn't manage to hold uh, your support. Our thanks to all four speakers, the audience here at the Emanuel Centre here in London in what was a fascinating debate. My thanks as well to Intelligence Squared for making it possible. Goodbye from Mina Gowing and everyone here in London. Bye-bye.